Chapter Two, Part Two of Bacteria in Daily Life by Grace Coleridge Franklin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. What We Breathe, Part Two. Some years ago, Messrs. Carnelli, Haldane, and Anderson carried out an elaborate series of investigations on the air of dwelling houses in some of the poorest parts of Dundee. The samples were taken during the night between twelve thirty a.m. and four thirty a.m and in their report the authors state that the one-room tenements were mostly those of the very poor, quote, sometimes as many as six or even eight persons occupied the one bed, unquote, whilst in other cases there was no bed at all. As regards the number of bacteria present in the air in these one-roomed houses, an average of several examinations amounted to sixty per quart. In two-roomed houses it was reduced to forty-six, and in houses of four rooms and upwards, only nine microorganisms in the same volume of air were discovered. On comparing the mortality statistics with the composition of the air of dwelling houses of different dimensions, the authors arrive at the following conclusions. Quote, that as we pass from four-roomed to three-, two-, and one-roomed houses, not only does the air become more and more impure, as indicated by the increase in the carbonic acid and organic matter, and more especially of the microorganisms, but there is a corresponding and similar increase in the death rate, together with a marked lowering of the mean age at death. Unquote. It is, of course, obvious that other circumstances besides overcrowding have to be reckoned with in considering these statistics. In the one-roomed houses, the wages earned by the occupants must have been small, and the amount available for even the bare necessaries of life very limited. That, in fact, they were to be reckoned amongst the class defined by Mr. Roundtree as living in primary poverty, whose earnings are insufficient to keep the body in a properly nourished condition. Mr. Roundtree has shown by statistics that the height, weight, and general condition of the poor are very much below those of the well-to-do laboring classes. Mention may also be made of the investigations made by these gentlemen on the air of board schools, which showed that in those buildings where mechanical ventilation was used, the carbonic acid gas was three-fifths the organic matter one-seventh, and the microorganisms less than one-ninth of what was found in schools ventilated by the ordinary methods. In commenting upon this series of investigations, the authors write, quote, When we come to consider that the children who attend average board schools for six hours a day are during that time subjected to an atmosphere containing on an average nearly nineteen volumes of carbonic acid per ten thousand, and a very large proportion of organic matter, and no less than 155 microorganisms at least per quart, we need not be surprised at the unhealthy appearance of very many of the children. It must also be borne in mind that many of them are exposed for nine hours more to an atmosphere which is about five times as impure as that of an ordinary bedroom in a middle-class house. They are thus breathing for at least 15 hours out of the 24, a highly impure atmosphere. The effects of this are often intensified, as is well known, by insufficient food and clothing, both of which must render them less capable of resisting the impure air. The fact that these schools become, after a time, habitually infected by bacteria renders it probable that they also become permanent foci of infection for various diseases, and particularly, perhaps, for tubercular disease in its various forms." Unquote. Further practical evidence of the manner in which the general death rate for certain diseases is influenced by the conditions under which the poor are housed is afforded by statistics which have been collected at Glasgow. In the case of zymotic diseases, whereas the death rate in tenements consisting of one or two rooms 
was 4.78 per thousand, it fell to 2.46 in those of three or four rooms, and to 1.14 per thousand in those of five rooms and upwards. Again, in the case of acute diseases of the lungs, the death rate was as high as 9.85 in the smallest tenements, and but 3.28 in the largest. Of great interest are the certified mortality statistics of phthisis in the British Army in the period 1830-46 to 46 and 1859-66, to 66, respectively. In the former, it was 7.86 per thousand, whilst in the latter period it had fallen to 3.1, this important difference being coincident with an increased cubic space per head in the barracks. Such facts as these, if only fully realized, should surely serve to stimulate municipal and other local authorities to provide decent and wholesome accommodation for the poor. It has been recently estimated that in London the total number of persons living in tenements of one to four rooms is 2,333,152, and of these nearly half a million live the life of the one-room tenement of three to a room and upwards. In the stirring words of Mr. John Burns, M.P., Quote, at least a million people who live thus on wages that barely sustain decent life are but prisoners of poverty, whose lot in life is but a funeral procession from the cradle to the grave. For these, as soon as practicable, better homes should be provided at once in the interest of physique, of morals, of industrial efficiency, and municipal health. Unquote. Yet despite all these facts and the overwhelming evidence which has been collected on the dire results which follow in the wake of overcrowding, and in sanitary dwellings, we find a prominent magistrate in one of our great industrial cities publicly expressing himself as follows at a municipal banquet. Quote, the town council sometimes attempted too much. For instance, they had been far too anxious to get quit of the slums. Now slums, in his opinion, were one of the necessities of all large towns, and it was impossible in the present state of civilization to dispense with slums unless they could take the people living in them, who were not fit to live anywhere else, and drown them wholesale, as would have been done in the time of the French Revolution." Unquote. We have seen how bacteria may be distributed by dust, how they may linger in crowded tenements and badly ventilated buildings, that insanitary surroundings provide, in fact, for the scientist a well-stocked bacterial covert, where he may with ease bag his thousands of germs of various descriptions. The fact already referred to that the bacteria of consumption may be released in the sputum of physical persons has perhaps already suggested the possibility of other bacteria being likewise discharged into the surrounding air. But it is no doubt difficult to realize that the utterance of even a few words may liberate a variety of bacteria, the mischievous or harmless character of which depends upon the condition of the speaker's health. But even the health of a speaker, if satisfactory, is not necessarily a safeguard against his dissemination of disease germs, for it is well known that the mouth secretions of healthy people may frequently contain the Staphylococcus pyogenes aureus, and also, though less frequently, the Diplococcus lanceolatus, both virulent microbes, whilst that diphtheria bacilli may be present in the mouths of people who are not suffering from the disease has been demonstrated repeatedly. What a capacity, then, for spreading evil does the public orator possess? It makes one tremble to think of the aerial condition of the House of Commons when a big debate is on, for it has been found that the sharper the enunciation of the consonants and the louder the voice, the larger is the number of organisms discharged and the farther they reach. If this danger attends the speaking of healthy people, 
what must be the risk accompanying the listening to speeches from persons suffering from consumption influenza or any other disease which specially affects the air passages what applies to speaking applies to a still greater degree to the act of coughing or sneezing to schaefer we owe the discovery that leprosy bacilli may be disseminated in immense numbers by the coughing of leprosy patients whilst it has been estimated that a tuberculosis invalid may discharge a billion tubercle bacilli in the space of twenty-four hours whilst the dried sputum of consumptive persons has actually engendered tuberculosis symptoms in the lungs of animals which were made to inhale it plague bacilli have been found in masses in the mouths of plague patients and were found moreover before any symptoms of the disease had declared themselves and the sputum of infected persons is regarded by some authorities as one of the most important vehicles by which plague is spread the culpability of air in the dissemination of tuberculosis amongst animals has been made the subject of some very exhaustive and valuable investigations by castleman in as many as seventy one per cent of bovine tuberculosis cases the respiratory organs castleman found were the seat of the disease the undoubted contamination of the air which takes place in the surroundings of tuberculosis animals is not however due to the bacilli being exhaled by such cattle in the mere process of respiration for it has been repeatedly found by various investigators that the air expired by infected animals is free from the dreaded tubercle bacteria as in man so in animals it is by the act of coughing that tuberculosis secretions are discharged through the mouth and nasal passages some of which in the form of spray may enable the bacilli to remain suspended in the air for periods of five hours or more whilst other portions of such secretions fall on the ground or in the feeding troughs and later on as dust may again relentlessly claim their toll of victims in other cases of tuberculosis the excrementitious matter becomes of course a fertile source of infection to the surroundings the dire results which may follow the introduction of a single tuberculosis animal into a healthy stall of cows may be realized from the fact that in one instance a whole herd of twenty-eight animals became in the course of one year infected in consequence of the admission of one diseased cow the cowhouse having previously had a perfectly clean bill of health in this respect on the continent the risk of wholesale infection by such means is greater than in this country for abroad the animals are to a much greater extent stall fed and kept shut up both winter and summer a case is mentioned by the well-known veterinary authority m of a whole stall of animals becoming infected through the cowman who tended them being consumptive he slept in a loft over the cows and his tuberculosis sputum in the form of dust was conveyed to the stalls below and so spread the infection it has been stated on high authority that domestic pets such as parrots may contract consumption from their masters and no less than thirty-six per cent of these birds brought to the veterinary college in berlin are found to be suffering from tuberculosis in that much dreaded south african cattle disease rinderpest the infection contrary to what is found in the case of tuberculosis animals is principally spread by the maturis morbi being liberated in the air expired by afflicted cattle the contagious area surrounding an infected animal extending to as much as a hundred yards or more again as regards pleuronemonia in cattle the contagion is given off in the air expired and owing to the length of time which elapses before the lung becomes completely healed and healthy even after a period of from six to nine months the expired air may still prove a source of infection in an official report on the open-air treatment of consumption in germany 
a case is mentioned in which the patient, a farmer by occupation, had contracted the disease from some tuberculosis cattle which he had on his farm. The writer goes on to say, quote, This case is worthy of special attention, inasmuch as it indicates that in addition to the danger of contracting the disease from the use of milk or meat derived from tuberculosis animals, the tending of such animals may serve to convey the infection to man, possibly much more frequently than has hitherto been supposed. Unquote. In addition to the above instances of the responsible part played by air in the dissemination of consumption, many others might be cited, but perhaps the most striking is that in which a scientific assistant of Tapinière contracted the disease, and succumbed to it, in the course of some experiments which were being made to ascertain whether consumption could be communicated to animals by spraying them with an emulsion of the sputum of consumptive patients. It is of historical interest to note that these experiments were being conducted by Tapinier three years before Robert Koch made the now classical announcement to the scientific world that he had succeeded in identifying, isolating, and in cultivating outside the human body the specific cause of consumption in the shape of the now familiar Bacillus tuberculosis. The opinion expressed by Koch at the Congress on Tuberculosis recently held in London that human and bovine tuberculosis are distinct diseases, is still the subject of contention and experimental investigation. Even if the opinion of this great authority is correct, and in this connection it is interesting to note that already in 1896 this opinion was brought forward by Smith in the medical record at a time when Koch was maintaining the identity of human and bovine tuberculosis, granted that Koch is correct, it should not, as so many fear, cause any relaxation in the efforts which have been at last made to safeguard our dairy produce by reasonable hygienic precautions. For even if tuberculosis is not transmissible from the cow to man, we know that in the hygienic supervision of our dairy industry we place a great barrier between us and the bacillus tuberculosis and those numerous other disease germs which can and do gain access to milk from the personnel of a dairy and so spread infection. With the alarming prevalence of consumption, is it not justifiable to regard as certain that a definite proportion of the people engaged in milking, for example, are consumptive? And knowing, as we now do, how such persons can give off the germs of the disease in the simple act of speaking, the contamination of our milk with human tubercle bacilli must be regarded almost as a certainty. Would it not be reasonable that a code of simple precautions to be taken— coupled with a few of the more cogent facts concerning consumption and its distribution, should be drawn up and circulated amongst all engaged in the dairy industry? The National Health Society has done much for the prevention of disease by disseminating, through leaflets and lectures, simple facts concerning health and its preservation. Might it not make itself the vehicle for the transmission of some such code which, whilst instructing, should impress upon its readers— the responsibility which rests upon each and every individual member of society by his or own personal efforts to assist in the great task of combating disease? A fact which urgently needs the widest recognition is the possible dissemination of disease germs by individuals not themselves suffering from the disease in question, but who have resided in the immediate surroundings of infected persons. Dr. Koch was the first to call attention to this danger when he discovered, during the Hamburg cholera epidemic, that perfectly healthy persons were infected with cholera vibrius and were the unconscious means of spreading the disease. Still more recently, it has been found that true typhoid germs may similarly be present in persons not suffering from typhoid fever, 
but sharing the same living rooms. Huxley has said, quote, science is nothing but trained and organized common sense, unquote. and it is in this spirit that we must endeavor to make use of the discoveries which have been made in the prevention of disease, in which the science of bacteriology has played so great and important a part. End of chapter 2